I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church, and we're so thankful that you're here um, to worship with us. Thankful to have Trina and Nick uh, continue to, to lead us in worship um, while we as a church are in the um, search still um, for uh, who God would bring to us um, to be our next worship leader. And so um, as we continue to ask you to to pray for us, we're just thankful that um, we've had so many people step up and use their gifts and lead us and certainly thankful for Nick and Trina doing that this morning. Um, So just out of curiosity, how many of you um, went to bed an hour early last night? Yep. Okay. Um, I'll try to make this quick then um, because I know how tired everyone is. Yeah, of course. So, uh, welcome. We are in uh, week four of our series called Petitions and Purpose as we just explore um, the prayer that Jesus prayed, not necessarily his, not technically his final prayer, but the most substantial prayer we have of Jesus and the one that comes just a few hours before he was arrested. And we've just been exploring this prayer um, on two fronts. One, to see how Jesus prayed and allow that to set an example for us and how we should pray. Um, But then also um, the fact that Jesus prayed for us and kind of our overarching theme verse for this series, even though we're looking at all of John chapter 17, is John chapter 17, verse 20, which says, Uh, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, this is a part of his prayer, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, there being the disciples. And so Jesus extends his final prayer, this or this final extensive prayer that we have, not only to the disciples who were right there with him, uh, that he was specifically praying for, but to all those who would later come to believe, which means Jesus prayed for you and I just hours before he was arrested. And so in addition to looking at this prayer as an example for how we should pray, pray. We're also looking at this prayer um, to to examine what is it that Jesus prayed for us. If if he's only got a few hours left before his arrest, and he's going to take the time to pray for you and I, whatever it is that he's going to pray for us is probably pretty important. And so in this series, we're looking at the seven petitions that Jesus explicitly asks uh, his heavenly father for most of which are on our behalf. And so I'm going to invite you to join me in John chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, great, open those up. You can use one of our Bibles that are in the seats if you need to, or open up your phone or your tablet to the Bible app and um, follow along with us there. So I'm actually going to go back. We're going to start in verse 9. Now, I know we covered verse 9 last week, but we'll start in verse 9 and we'll read through verse 16 just because the verses we covered last week kind of helped to set up This week. So I'll start in verse 9, and this is where Jesus really begins his prayer and petitions for his disciples and for us. He says in verse 9, I am praying for them. That's his disciples, and we see in verse 20 he's going to extend it to all those who would believe. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's what we read last week. And then verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so hopefully you have um, your Bible apps open. I know we've got some uh, issues with the screen. Um, And so if you have your Bible app open, if you're not already open to John 17, um, you can do that or click live events. Element Church will be the first thing to pop up. Um, and then click Element Church, and then not only John 17, but the other scriptures we're going to cover, which will be in John 15, which is pretty easy to turn to, um, will also be laid out for you. But um, a few things that I want to point out is specifically part of the request and what Jesus is stating here. And there's a few things that are worth noting, that Jesus recognizes that he and his disciples are in the world, even though Jesus states, I'm, I'm about to not be in the world any longer. He recognizes the disciples are in the world, but they're not to be of the world. And then Jesus specifically does not pray to take them out of the world. So he acknowledges a couple of things. The disciples are in the world. We talked about the world last week. Um, and, and, and how Jesus and the author John here utilize that, that word and, and kind of what that encapsulates, encapsulates that, um, that it's both a part of the created order, yet it's, it's distinct. The world is not just the physical earth um, and the grass and the rocks and the trees, but that, um, as we see in John chapter 1, that um, the world also has the ability and the capability of belief. And that we see that in John chapter 1, that both the world is created, but also has the capability of belief. And so Jesus says the disciples are in the world, but they're not to be of the world. And then he specifically mentions that he's not going to pray for them to be taken out of the world. And so a couple things that I want us to look at and that I think are um, interesting and should kind of hopefully draw our attention is that this is very similar to something that Jesus has already taught that John 17, his prayer uh, is very similar to something he's already taught his disciples in John chapter 15. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at kind of both of those to kind of give us an idea of what it is that Jesus is trying to communicate and what it is that he's trying uh, to mention here. Uh, And so the first part is that Um, Jesus mentions in this passage as a part of this prayer that he has given the disciples his word. So if you look back in verse 11, which we've already read today, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Um, And then just, uh, just later, he talks about having given the disciples his word. And then if you look at Uh, verse 8, Jesus does the same thing. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me. Now, if you look in John chapter 15, Jesus um, begins teaching on the vine and the branches. We've taught on this before. If you're familiar um, at all with Jesus' teachings, this may be a a teaching that resonates with you. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. This uh, will be on the screen now, I think, uh, or you uh, you can look at it in your Bibles. Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus is in this prayer kind of highlighting something he's already been trying to establish with his disciples, right? That I have given you my word, that I have given you the Father's word. And, and in John 15, he kind of speaks to this identity that we talked about last week. Last week, if you were here, for those of you who decided to brave the snow and the crazy cold temperatures, um, we talked about how uh, our identity is built in God. That Jesus actually prays, we just read it in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. That was one of his first petitions for his disciples. Keep them in your name. That this was an identity statement about who we were supposed to be. And then Jesus carries the same idea in his teaching in John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you want to do what you've been called to do, if you want to be who you were created to be, then you're going to have to remain in me. He's, he's identifying that same, uh, that same idea, that you're going to have to find your identity and your life source in me. And a part of that is that Jesus says, I've given you my word. And so that's kind of the first connection that we get between Jesus' prayer in John 17 and his teaching in John 15. There's another one. And Jesus says explicitly um, that the world hates those that are not like the world. Now, in the prayer we just read, it was in verse 14. He said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Now, this is just like what he taught in John 15 as well. It's another one of those connections. In in, uh, John 15, starting in verse 18... If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus here connects both in his prayer with his teaching in John 15, the the teaching that he had just given his disciples, that the world is going to hate you because you're not like it. If you were like the world, if you were one uh, one of their own, the world would love you. But it doesn't because you're not of the world. He's continuing this idea that you're, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And carrying on this same idea. And then uh, one more. And I want to point out, and Jesus refers to his joy. This is one more of those connections between John 15 and John 17. That's kind of what we're doing here, is just outlining these similar themes and connections that go together. In John 17, in his prayer, it comes out of verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And Jesus, along that same line, mentions his joy in John 15. He says it in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, 
So here's what Jesus has done. He said that we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That we're going to be a part of the world, but we should not be considered by the world's own standards, one of their own. That we are not to be withdrawn from the world, but we're also not supposed to be confused with the world either. And as a part of this request, as a part of Jesus' statement, and praying that God would both keep us, our identity, in his name, and then as he prays here in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, his second petition. Jesus is exploring this dichotomy of what it means to be in but not of. And this is what Jesus prayed for you and for me just hours before his arrest. Of all the things he could have prayed for, I mean, there's a million things he could have prayed for. One of his prayers was concerning our position in this world, that we would be in but not of the world. And as a part of that, he says that my joy might be fulfilled in them. That my joy might be fulfilled in them. So part of this this division that we're to be in but not of, as a part of Jesus' joy being fulfilled in us, the question, I think, is begged, what is Jesus' joy? If we're to be in but not of, and as a part of that process, Jesus' joy should be fulfilled in us, then the question is, what is his joy? What is it that he wanted to be fulfilled in us? And notice what word he used, right? He didn't just say, I want my joy in them. He said, I want my joy fulfilled in them. And so I think there's two passages we could look at that give us the clearest indication of Jesus's joy that would teach us what he wants to be fulfilled in us And how it is that through that process, we will be distinct from the world. That we will be in the world, but that there will be some kind of clear marker to distinguish us that we are not of the world. That we are not one of the world's own. And and what divides us. So there's two places. One of them is Luke chapter 15. Now, I want to invite you. You are welcome to turn to Luke 15. Luke 15 will not be on the screen. And the reason is because I'm not going to go through and read it all. Um, Other than I just want to look at the first verse. Um, Now, this is not going to be on the screen. But in Luke 15, I just want to set the stage for what's about to happen. And then we'll just kind of summarize quickly because you can probably scan through here. And if you are familiar with the New Testament at all, you'll probably recognize some of these stories. The first two verses, this is not going to be on the screen. You can either listen or maybe you have your your Bible open there. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Now we talked about this a number of weeks ago um, that, you know, when we think tax collectors and sinners, we think like probably maybe like IRS and then everyone, like we're all sinners, right? Um, The language here, that is not what, no matter how much you despise the IRS, especially right now at this season, or if you're a procrastinator, what is it, like another 35 days and then you'll really, um, 
you know, be frustrated maybe, but uh, for, for, for people in the first century, and especially in this region, um, a tax collector was a traitor. They were one of your own, right? They, they were one of your people who had sold themselves out to the Roman Empire. They had sided with the enemy. They had abandoned what you thought was most important in life, you and your community. Everything you stood for, they had walked away from it in order to serve the enemy. And so the tax collectors, their job was to collect taxes for the Roman Empire, which primarily funded the Roman army, which was your oppressors. They were raising money for the people that oppressed you. And not only were they raising money to pay for the people who were oppressing you and who were keeping you from your God-given promise, the land and the, and the freedom that God had promised to his people, but they were adding a little. They were saying, hey, here's what you owe to pay your fair share of the oppressing army's you know, costs plus a little extra so I can put it in my pocket because that's how they made their money. Tax collectors, they were traitors. Nobody liked the tax collectors. Like everyone equally didn't like them. And when, when the Bible, especially here and from a first century perspective, when it refers to sinners, it's not one of those like, oh, we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. Like, like we all recognize, I hope we all do in this room, and uh, that, that we're all sinners, that we've all messed up, that we've all fallen short of God's standard and his holiness and his glory. But for them, this was a derogatory term. This was the worst of the worst. And so it says that the tax collectors and the sinners are being drawn near to Jesus. And this infuriates the religious elite. And verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes, those were a part of the religious elite, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. And in the first century, to eat with somebody was to show your, your acceptance of them. To sit down and have a meal with someone uh, meant that you were, did I say it? I did, didn't I? Meal, to have a meal. I try to avoid that word at all costs. Um, they had supper together, if that's better. Um, right? Meant that you were putting yourself on the same level as them. And it infuriated the religious elite. So in response to this anger, that Jesus was spending time with the outcasts, the ones that no one else cared about, He tells three stories. And the first story, and you can see it right here listed, is the parable of the lost sheep. And he says, what shepherd, if if he had 100 sheep and one went missing, wouldn't leave the 99 to go find the one? And when he found the one, what would he do? He would call everyone who cares about him and say, rejoice with me. Because the one that was lost has been found. And then he immediately moves into another story. And he says, there's a woman who had lost a coin. And so what, would she, what does she do? She turns her whole house upside down to find it. And when she finds it, what does she do? She calls anyone who cares about her and says, rejoice with me. Because what was lost has been found. And then he tells a story about a lost son. And in the end, the the end of the story is the son that was lost comes home and the loving father celebrates and rejoices in his return. 
Now, what's interesting is Jesus breaks from the pattern. Uh, The pattern is consistent, right? Something's lost, it's found, we celebrate. Something's lost, it's found, we celebrate. Story three, something's lost, it's found, we celebrate, but the self-righteous brother doesn't want to celebrate. And remember who Jesus is telling these stories to. He's telling them to the self-righteous religious people who are mad because Jesus is spending time with the tax collectors and sinners because he's willing to sit down and eat with them. He's willing to rub shoulders with them. And throughout this whole series of these three stories, there's this rejoicing and this genuine joy over what has, was lost has been found. And we're going to celebrate it. It's Jesus justifying to these religious people why he does what he does and what's wrong with them in their own heart. He's trying to get them to realize that Jesus is seeking after what has been lost. He's going after those who everyone else in society has rejected, who are in most desperate need for God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing. And he says, I am pursuing what is lost. And now that they've been found, we should be rejoicing. We should be celebrating. This is a story that all of these disciples who are sitting around praying with Jesus in this moment in John 17... All of them heard Jesus tell this story. All of them watched as Jesus silenced the self-righteous people. Every time they had an objection to who Jesus is and uh, was and what he was doing. When Jesus says that there's going to be this distinction. That, that my followers, they're going to be in the world. I'm not trying to, trying to pull them out of the world but they're not going to be of the world. They are not going to be one of the world's own. And my joy, what brings me joy, is going to be fulfilled in them. It's one of the things that will set us apart from the world is the way in which we rejoice for that which was lost being found. It's when we rejoice that those that others have rejected are welcomed. It's when we rejoice that when the world has said, all hope is lost, let's give up on them. We rejoice because God isn't ever finished. When Jesus says that my joy will be fulfilled in them, Jesus expected that what would distinguish us from the world is the way in which we pursue the lost and celebrate when God does something in their lives that we don't ever write anyone off as too lost or a lost cause or a waste of time. And Jesus expected his joy of celebrating what was lost being found would be fulfilled in us. There's one other place um, that explicitly talks about Jesus's joy that I want us to look at, and it's Hebrews chapter 12. If you want to turn there, that's great. If not, this one will be on the screen. Excuse me. I think. Okay, good. I wrote, I have the right verses listed in my notes, but I wrote down the wrong, the wrong place that it was to be found. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, we'll start in verse 1. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now there's a lot of descriptors that we could put when it comes to talking about the crucifixion. We could talk about the negative side, about how ugly it was, how brutal it was. Uh, that's actually going to be the topic of uh, the sermon on Palm Sunday. That's the Sunday before Easter. Uh, is, is we're going to look at the historical nature of crucifixion, where it came from, why the Romans did it, what actually took place at a crucifixion. We'll, we'll look at it from a historical standpoint. So when we talk about the cross, we could talk about the negative side, how brutal it was. We could also talk about the positive side. If we talked about the positive side, most of us would talk about what the cross accomplished. We talk about how it brought a way for us to be reconciled back to God. That because you and I are all sinners, that the payment, the penalty for our sin was paid for us on the cross. But I love the way that the writer of Hebrews says it. For the, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. When we talk about the crucifixion, joy is probably not a word most of us would associate with it. Maybe a joy for us because of how we benefit from it. But it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And then notice why the author even says this. First of all, he says, let us throw off everything that holds us down, the weight and the sin that, that weigh us down, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then, verse 2, looking to Jesus. Jesus is that example for us in order for us to run the race that's been set before us. And then if you go back down to verse 3, consider him, Jesus, who endured, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you, that's the audience, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus said, they're going to be in but not of the world. And my joy is going to be fulfilled in them. A part of that joy was the pursuit of what is lost and the celebration when it's found. Part of that joy was in never counting anyone a lost cause. Part of that joy was the willingness to embrace sacrifice for others. And the author of Hebrews sets Jesus up as that example. If we're going to run the race that's set before us, 
we're going to have to look to Jesus. If we're going to not grow weary and faint-hearted, we're going to have to look to Jesus, who because of his joy endured the cross, who because of his joy put up with the shame and the mistreatment of, of others. Jesus said, my joy is to be fulfilled in you. Part of that meant living a life of self-sacrifice to the benefit of others. That what should set us apart from the rest of the world is our willingness to walk into whatever mistreatment may come our way. To walk into whatever, however, whatever hate the world wants to throw at us and to be able to willingly walk into it for the benefit of others. And this is what Jesus prayed for you in his final moments. Of all the things he could have prayed for, he prayed for you and I to not, to not be of the world. We're going to be in the world. But we're not going to be of it. And a part of that is that Jesus expects his joy to be fulfilled in us and pursuing that which was lost. And in being willing to self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. And so in just an attitude of personal reflection, I think the question is, is Jesus' prayer being answered in your life? Is what he prayed for you coming true in your heart? That your life is being distinguished from the rest of the world because of your willingness to not give up on someone, because of your willingness to pursue to any means necessary, reach the lost. To celebrate when the lost are found. Is his prayer that you wouldn't be so self-righteous that you ignore those who are in desperate need around you. Is his prayer coming true? That you would live a life of self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. Because that is what is going to distinguish us from the rest of the world. It's what Jesus prayed for you. And the question is, are you opening yourself up to that prayer being answered? Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for our time here. Jesus, I, I think for most of us, our heart and our desire is that, um, Lord, that that prayer would be answered in our lives. That there would be a clear distinction between us and the rest of the world. Between us and, and the world that does not believe in you, that does not follow you. Lord, I pray that we would open our minds and our hearts to you. That you would do something in us so that that prayer would come true. That our lives would be marked by pursuing that which is lost. That we would be open uh, and, and not give up on anyone. 
and that our lives would be lived in self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. I'm going to invite you to keep your eyes closed for just a few more minutes. And in this moment, we're going to enter into a time of prayer, a time of response. And there's a couple ways in which you can respond to who God is and what he's doing in your heart and in your mind in this moment. And some of you may want to stay seated in an attitude of prayer. Reflecting on what we talked about, maybe in an attitude of reflection on your own life and the ways in which God is working in you. And maybe, maybe even now there's something that God is speaking to you. Maybe it's somebody that you've given up on and he's challenging you on not giving up. Uh, maybe it's somebody who is lost and no one is pursuing them and it's because he's called you to be the one to do it. And maybe it's because he's asking you to take on that life of self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. Because in Jesus, in his joy, endured the cross. And for us, because of his joy and the joy that we find in him, we're going to endure whatever roadblocks may sit before us. And if you want to stay seated in an attitude of prayer and reflection, you do that. Nick and Trina Trina are going to lead us in worship. And if you want to stand and sing and celebrate, you do that. The communion table will be open in the back if you want to make that a part of your worship response this morning. As we celebrate that Jesus counted it joy to endure the cross on our behalf. And when we take the cup, when we take the bread, we honor and remember what he did on the cross. In that final supper with his disciples, the bread that was broken represented his body that was broken for us. The cup represented his blood that was poured out for us on the cross. And for 2,000 years, Christians have taken the bread and the cup as a way to honor and remember and to celebrate what he did on the cross for us. And the elements of the table are at the back if you'd like to make that a part of your worship response. Lord Jesus, thank you for our time together. Lord, we ask that, um, that you would be honored by all that we do and say in this moment, all that we think and sing and pray. Jesus, we want your joy to be fulfilled in us. Would you do whatever needs to be done in our hearts and our minds to open us to what's before us, to be about what you were about, and that our lives would pursue the joy the joy that you expressed in your time on earth. Lord, thank you for this time. Would you continue to speak to each of us in this moment?